Herzlich willkommen to the Opera Box Score podcast for Monday, April 4. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. This is a bonus episode in our series introducing you to the opera world of Germany. I'm about to leave Berlin, but first I wanted to share with you a great show loaded with extra interviews, hot takes, and reviews. When we go inside the huddle for our interview segment, my guest is Kirsten Harms, the former Intendantin, or general manager, of the Deutsche Oper Berlin. She's now a freelance stage director in Germany, and there are few people working in this opera business who have her mix of administrative experience and artistic talent. You're going to get her take on Berlin's opera scene and an inside look at her tenure at the Deutsche Oper, as well as her opinion on opera in America. But wait, there's more. Later, I'm joined by Roy Rallo, an American director based at San Francisco Opera, who also is connected to the scene here in Berlin. His candid opinions about the business of opera will definitely surprise you. In our Chalk Talk segment, I'll tell you why six weeks isn't enough time to rehearse an opera, even though it's the industry standard in a German opera house. And we've also got this week's opera headlines, our Monday evening quarterback segment, and Oliver checks in from Chicago with a field report. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out, like we do. And what's more, on our show, you get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. If you're calling from outside the U.S., add a 1 at the beginning of that number. You can also email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Opera Box Score is right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. All right. Thanks for joining us this week on Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here. The last podcast that I did from Germany last week when I was in Munich, I had said that I'd be back in Chicago and that uh, we'd have the whole team together. And I got to Berlin and... I had more material to put out there. I was able to get a couple great interviews, and I figured let's make a bonus episode. So the whole team is going to join us in a week from today. Uh, Part of this show is being recorded in Berlin. We're going to make a few edits as well when we get back to Chicago. We've got Kirsten Harms on the show this week. I cannot tell you how excited I am that she is going to be part of the podcast. Uh, Don't want to miss that, whatever you do. Also, Roy Rallo joining us as well, old colleague of mine from the San Francisco Opera, my days at the Marilla Opera program. I want to start, though, with our Chalk Talk segment and talk about the rehearsal process a little bit in Germany. It's not something we've spent any time on, on the uh, podcasts from Germany. It takes me back to 2011 and 2012 when I was a assistant director in Darmstadt. And I was astounded that the rehearsal process for many of the shows, not everyone, but most of them was six weeks long. Now, if you're an American director listening to that, you wouldn't know what to do with six weeks. 
typical rehearsal process is like two to three weeks. When I was an assistant in Pittsburgh, as part of the resident artist program there, we got two weeks of rehearsal and a week of tech. And that two weeks of rehearsal, really, after you took out weekends and losing time to costume fittings and table work and that sort of thing, was really like 10 days, actually. That's not a ton of time to put up a full-scale opera. In Darmstadt, and this is the case, I think, with many opera houses in Germany, you're looking at, let's say, five or six weeks. Sounds like a long time, right? Here's the thing. It's not. The reason for that is most German opera houses are built on an ensemble system where they have a core group of singers, let's say five, ten, twenty singers, and those singers are used to play large roles and bit parts in the various operas throughout the season. It's actually something that's kind of similar to the storefront theater scene in Chicago. You know, look at the theater company like Steppenwolf, which is built on an ensemble of actors. It programs pieces that showcase those actors. And this is a model that has been very pervasive in American theater from Chicago on out, but not really in opera here in the U.S. And of course, it's pervasive in opera as well. The problem with it is this, is that those singers are performing in other shows during the opera house season. If you have a repertoire of operas that you're doing, a singer might be in your new production of Lucia di Lammermoor by Donizetti that you're directing. But in the meantime, in those rehearsals, she also has to do performances of other pieces in the repertoire of the opera house. And maybe she gets a call from an opera house in the next city over Last minute, she needs to go substitute or fill in for somebody because they fell sick. So that six weeks gets reduced very, very quickly into, let's say, four or four and a half weeks because you're starting to lose these singers to different things. In addition to that, in Darmstadt, we had very strange rehearsal hours. We rehearsed 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and then 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Now, I have yet to get a really good explanation of why that is, and I'm sure some houses don't do it that way. But that big break in the middle of the day, on paper, you think, oh, that's nice. You go out, you have a nice lunch, you have a beer, you go home, take a little nap, check your email, come back. But actually, I think it slows the process down. I think that getting back for that evening rehearsal, 6 to 10 p.m. in the evening, you're tired. Maybe you haven't been able to go home, and so you've stayed at the opera house the whole day for that four-hour break in the middle of the day don't have a lot of energy, you're there till 10 o'clock at night, and I think that it slows down the process as a whole. The last thing, which I think is problematic about the six weeks, is that the stage manager is typically not in the rehearsal room for the bulk of the staging rehearsals. So, they are only part of the process when the opera is being rehearsed on the actual opera house performing stage itself. That's really what they're responsible for, is when you're rehearsing on the stage of the opera house, is making sure they're being there. But the problem is this, is that because they're not in the rehearsals in the rehearsal room, they don't necessarily know what's going on in terms of staging, props, costumes, light cues, sound cues, cues that affect uh, stage machinery or affect the way stagehands need to be moving things. And so a lot of time is lost when an assistant director has to bring the stage manager or inspizient, which is the fancy German word for it, has to bring them up to speed. 
I'm going to say you probably lose another half week or a week based on these rehearsal hours and based on the the lack of a stage manager not being in the rehearsal process. So that takes your whole thing down to three and a half weeks. Take out another half week for table work and talking about the concept, which tends to be fairly esoteric and abstract and requires a bit of explanation. A dramaturg who is part of the opera company who needs to talk about the piece and its history, talk about its music, and you're cutting it down to three weeks. And here I'm talking about just a new production. I'll, I'll tell you, if you're just remounting something, you know, one week, 10 days, you'd be lucky in Germany, which again is the same way it is here. You know, I've sat in rehearsals at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. I've sat in rehearsals at the Wiener Staatsoper in Vienna or at the Deutsche Oper in Berlin. And it's really the same uh, around the world is that if you're remounting your production, all the staging has already been crafted. You're just slotting in new singers into these parts. There really is no time for that at all. So six weeks, is that a lot of time to rehearse a show? On paper, it sounds like it is. But in practice, I think it's something very different. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist. Let's go inside the huddle. All right, time to go inside the huddle. It's our segment where we interview folks that are in the opera business, singers, directors, conductors, and my guest this week is Kirsten Harms, who is the former intendantin of the Deutsche Oper Berlin. She was not only the first woman to run the Deutsche Oper, this is from 2004 to 2011, she's actually the only woman to have ever run that particular opera house. Uh, just to put her interview in context for a couple different points, uh, she mentions a man called Götz Friedrich, who was the intendant uh, in the 80s and the 90s for 20 years, who is a seminal opera director, and his productions, especially of Wagner's Ring Cycle, are still in the rep, and they're just fantastic. We also talk about a controversy which was in September of 2006, and it was over this production of Mozart's Adomineo. The production was directed by Hans Neuenfels, who is a German director and actually a fantastic artist, in my opinion. Uh, the production had a scene in it in which Idomeneo, who's the king of Crete, enters the stage carrying a bag of severed heads with the heads of Neptune, Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad. Needless to say, that is not part of Mozart's original production. And it's a departure from the libretto. There's no question about that. And so Kirsten Harms made the decision to cancel four performances of the production, Adomineo, and that was in September of 2006. Uh, and you'll, you'll hear her take on why she did that, uh, basically for uh, a security risk. Uh, it was never clear if there were threats to the Opera House or not. The BBC said that there weren't. The New York Times said that there were. But there was, I think, a real debate in Germany at that time about the issue of self-censorship and free speech. Some folks supported her. Many politicians were against her. And she talks about that on our interview. But I wanted to put that into context so that you know what she's talking about. 
Kirsten Harms also ran the directing program for undergraduates at the Hamburger Hochschule for Musik Theater. Uh, she's a self-employed freelance director working all around Germany. I met her in Wiesbaden back in 2011 when she was directing a production of Lohengrin, designed by her husband, who's uh, her longtime scenic designer collaborator. And I'll tell you, the way she ran that room really stuck with me. I bring this up in the interview again, but like no one screwed around in that rehearsal room. Everybody paid attention the whole time. And I was just so grabbed by that. I've, I've tried to emulate that myself as a director. I think that's all you need to know for right now. Everything else speaks for itself. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Kirsten Harms, great to see you. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Berlin. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's it's kind of a gray day outside, actually, uh, but you have a fantastic uh, blick, shall I say, of this um, river. I don't know what river this is. Yeah, that is the Havel. When the sun is shining, you have all the sealing boats. Uh-huh, right, yeah. right, exactly. The podcast that we're doing is all about Berlin, and it's all about directors, and that's why I wanted to talk to you. Can you start by comparing the three big opera houses in Berlin for our audience? There has always been a very interesting artistic um, competitive struggle, especially between the two big houses. Um, and that means the, the old court opera house, which is the Staatsoper unter den Linden, which is Daniel Barenbaum's house, and um, which you can compare, for instance, with Opera Garnier à Paris. And, and the newer opera house, uh, the Deutsche Oper Berlin, which was built in 1911. And it was built from, um, from the money of the new uh, bourgeoisie public. In the, after the Second World War, um, when Germany was separated, these two big houses um, were the first houses of West Germany, which was the Deutsche Oper Berlin. And um, the, uh, the other house was from East Germany, and which was the Staatsoper und den Linden. And these, these two houses were the prestige objects. So they had a lot of money, and they could engage everybody they wanted, especially in the area of Götz Friedrich which everybody knows, I think, still knows. Um, but after the German reunification, uh, there came a new question. Uh, do we need three opera houses in Berlin? Because they don't, didn't want to waste so much money anymore. And the, they thought other things than arts are more important. And... Um, when I came, so Götz Friedrich already had a lot of problems um, because they decided to close the Deutsche Oper Berlin. And when I came, I said, yes, it is necessary to have these three houses because they play different roles. The German, the Deutsche Oper Berlin um, is the biggest house and was built to be able to play the big operas from Richard Wagner's which was very much en vogue um, during the change of the century, for instance. The old 
court opera was too little for that. They had acoustic problems and space problems because this opera house was built for Baroque operas and classical operas. Well, so we played at the German, at the Deutsche Oper Berlin, uh, the big repertoire. And especially also now, um, the Staatsoper is in another house because they are rebuilding the um, Staatsoper Unter den Linden, the building. When I was in Germany in 2012, they were still rebuilding the Staatsoper and, and it's still happening even yes, now. Yes, it does. And it would last. It, yeah, it'll take a while. And, and of course, the third opera house you refer to is the uh, Komische Oper. And um, how does that fit into this, uh, this landscape? What... Yeah, it's the smallest house, and it was uh, built like opera comique. So uh, they do another repertoire, especially they do operette, mm -hmm. they do musical, they do shows, and they do um, very crazy things, mm -hmm. entertainment, and um, of course, they also do experimental things. So they play another role, I would say. You were the intendantin or the general manager, we would say, in America for the Deutsche Oper Berlin. Uh, and in 2006, you had to make a very difficult decision. Uh, the decision was whether or not these performances of Mozart's Idomeneo uh, should go on or, if, or if should they be cancelled and you decided to cancel them. If you had to make that decision again today, would you make the same choice? Well, yeah, after 10 years now, um, I think I know nobody anymore who says um, that this was not the right decision. Uh, because um, when the Minister of, of the Interior and also um, the state crime office call you in your vacancies to meet immediately because they expect if we play this special show in a special version, um, they expect terroristic attacks. Um, I was not willing to ignore that and to say it doesn't interest me um, Arts are free, but of course it interested me, because if something would have happened, I would have been responsible for that. And the, and the decision was wise because it um, made possible a de-escalation of the situation. And the other problem was when I gave the big press conference with hundreds of journalists from all over the world, not one politician, not one head of administration Nobody came. Hmm. So there was one woman like me with blonde hair <laughs> and a cream color dress between these hundreds of black journalists said that I'm a weak woman who fears terrorism and who is not able to do any decision. And um, so they, they, they made of me a lonely, weak woman. I mean, on the other hand, I said... Think what you want, write what you want, because I'm extremely clear that this is the only decision I will do. Mm. And I knew they couldn't fire me. And so <laughs> <laughs> I feel very strong and said, OK, we go through that. 
you and I met for the first time uh, a few years ago in Wiesbaden, and you were directing Wagner's Lohengrin at the time in a fantastic production. I'll never forget the chorus, the men and the women were all dressed like men. Yes. And they all had um, trousers and, and beards. So I was observing those rehearsals. And you were so in command and so in control of that rehearsal room. No, everyone did what they were told. Nobody complained. H how did you and how do you get that, that feeling in the rehearsal room? Yeah, I do get it always also leading an opera house, which I did 16 years and of course, there's a lot of experience of, of directing, which means leading complicated people who have uh, uh, complicated things to do, difficult things to do. I think there is not one answer. Mm -hmm. When I was a little girl, I was already directing in a way. And what I did is I inspired other children. And I was full of ideas and imaginative. And um, I thought the best way to, to get the interest is to create enthusiasm. Also, then you have to communicate what are your ideas and how to translate them into action. How, how to put them on scene. Because then they believe you. And of course, it's necessary to dominate everything. I think I lead with 90% language of the body. Hmm. Not so much talking. I never have to say, please be quiet. Um, I do it with my body and they are quiet. <laughs> yes, I, I think I have a, a precise look for everybody. Especially, I, I see everything when they do good things, when they in, invent a new way of playing. I, have a, I, I, I see that and I give a feedback. And of course, that creates a creative atmosphere. Of course, I always ask myself what works and what does not work. So if something does not work, I'm not thinking the other people are the problem. I always think... What can you do to get them? I mean, you can do an, an experiment if you want, uh, maybe for one week. Communicate only what you want, what you like, what interests you, what you, where you agree, what you decide, and what uh, you think is the way to do something. So that means cut all the text is which say something you do not want or you criticize or you do not like. Just make a jump and go to the other positive way to communicate. That helps already so much. And it's no problem to say, well, I changed the idea. For instance, the acoustic is not what I expected or it is not what I wanted to tell. You know, they follow you immediately. Um, it's no problem. And also it's very important to, to respect the people who criticize you. Because in every group you have people who do not agree. Or who, are, who fear something or who doubt. And some of them are able to communicate it early. So uh, they make a joke or they um, 
show you in a way that they don't agree. And I appreciate that because I know these are the people where I get the earliest information that there might be a problem or that there might be something which, which doesn't work. And it's necessary to understand what they want or what they feel. It's not necessary that then you do what they want. Because if you say, um, I understand your ideas, I understand your position, but now with my decision, I know that I will frustrate you because I decide in another way. They accept it. Uh, what, what has been your experience of the American opera system and what is your opinion of it in, in very general terms? I think the best opera house of the world is the Metropolitan. Every big star wants to sing there. Every first conductor conducts there. And so um, um, I think that the American system is very successful. Of course, the difference is the sponsoring system to Germany, for instance. I think the, the advantage of the sponsoring system is that you get um, people involved with arts and the opera houses in that case. Maybe there can uh, uh, come up problems if people who give money expect that artists meet their expect expectations. Because if you give, give money, you expect successes. Um, you want, you prefer the, the, the successful receipts, for instance. And um, of course, avant-garde sometimes is the contrary. In Germany, we deal with politicians, but they don't do any comments about what arts they expect, because they know it's forbidden. The sponsors in America pay less taxes. Um, so also the community, um, so that means everybody pays in an indirect way the arts. It goes only through the portemonnaie of the sponsor. In uh, Germany also everybody pays the arts. In Germany the directors of theatres uh, need less time to get the money because they get the money from the state. In America I know that you have to work a lot to get enough money. On the other hand it's very difficult to say one system is better than the other. You cannot, because they are different and they are both very successful. One of the hallmarks, I think, of the German system is that all of the middle-sized houses, so these are not the big houses, but the middle-sized ones are still able to program different pieces, unusual pieces. They have productions that are you know, quasi avant-garde or at least unique and non-traditional. But in America, our middle-sized houses are not able to do that because the general managers don't think the audiences will like that. That seems to me to be a problem. How are the German houses, these middle German houses, how are they able to do such unique pieces of, of opera and have their audiences be happy. Yeah, I'm very experienced in that because you know that I did a lot of unknown pieces. If a production is good, people talk about it and that fills the house. 
I think that is the only really receipt. Make good arts, try to make the best, and then you will convince the people, whether they know the title or not. Of course, there are very well-known titles like The Magic Flute, but there are a lot of opera fans who want to have something new that they do mm. not know. Mm. And when we, do play, uh, when we play such pieces, um, they come from all over the world. Something that we're following very closely in America now is the number of asylum seekers and the number of refugees coming into Europe, coming into Germany. How is that affecting opera in Germany? And what is opera's responsibility to address this challenge? I mean, in, in Germany, we um, do already a lot for young people so that they get into the experience how to dance, how to be on stage, how to sing in a chorus. And um, it's, it's a way to show them a new world. And some opera houses, I think they um, also try to get uh, these people from other cultures to have a look or to be part of. On the other hand, of course, the arts do not do really react on the daily politics. Um, it's more the um, task to, to, to tell storage, uh, stories about the fate of individuals, about um, human destinies and uh, to tell something fundamental about human beings and there are a lot of pieces who deal with that. Kirsten Harms, thank you so much for being on the show this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. This just in the Two Minute Drill. It's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes stops. Legendary soprano Kathleen Battle, who starred in more than 200 Met performances over the course of her career, will make her first appearance at the Met in more than 20 years with the recital Underground Railroad, A Spiritual Journey, which is in November. Battle will sing a recital of spirituals inspired by the journey to freedom along the Underground Railroad, the 19th century network of safe houses that allowed African Americans to escape from slavery. Although their first collaboration, the New York premiere of the opera Charlie Parker's Yardbird, will not open until Friday, the Apollo Theater and Opera Philadelphia announced Wednesday that they would continue to team up to stage contemporary operas over the next few years. The next production at the Apollo will be in the fall of 2017, and it's the New York premiere of We Shall Not Be Moved, currently being developed by the composer Daniel Rumain, the librettist Mark Joseph, and the director Bill T. Jones. Due to the grave economic situation in Rio de Janeiro, the Teatro Municipal has made cuts in its season of opera, ballet, and concerts. The production of La Boheme by Puccini will be presented in concert form, and the Barber of Seville by Rossini, planned for September, will be cancelled. General Manager Joha Ripper wrote that our goal is, quote, to keep the Teatro Municipal functioning and its programming as close to as possible to what was announced last year, in spite of the immense financial difficulties that we're facing. Back in 2013, film director Wim Wenders was supposed to have staged The Ring Cycle by Richard Wagner at Bayreuth, the major German festival dedicated to Wagner's work. But nothing came of it. Now, quote, after a long flirtation, Wenders has agreed to stage Bizet's The Pearl Fishers for the Staatsoper in Berlin next year. 
And that's the two-minute drill. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Hello, listeners. I'm so sorry I don't know how to crossfade, but I miss all of you so much, and we will be back live in the studio next week. You just heard a snippet of the opening scene from Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, which is easily the most important thing you can go see in Chicago this year. Uh, if you are local, Mark Morris Dance Group and Music Ensemble performs their monumental interpretation of this show uh, Tuesday and Wednesday of this week at the Harris Theater for Music and Dance. The Mark Morris version of this opera is everything. It's everything. If I was Stefan from Saturday Night Live Weekend Update, this opera has everything. Uh, it's sexy. It's joyful. It's heartbreaking. It's cross-disciplinary. It's stylish. It's got great singers. It's everything. Jamie Van Eyck sings Dido. Sherry Pentaki sings Belinda. Doug Williams, the gorgeous, I'm telling you, gorgeous Doug Williams sings the role of Aeneas. But all of them sing in the pit because the action takes place on stage and is entirely choreographed. You must see this thing. Other things happening this week in Chicago. Uh, master classes. I'm a big fan of master classes in general. They can be entertaining. They can be informative. Sometimes you get a peek at the mind of the artist who's doing the master class, and you get to really understand, you know, what made their particular career tick. You know, what was their skill? What did they think about? What did they bring to the table? And sometimes it's very surprising. Somebody who you might think of as a very technical singer actually has a lot of artistic ideas. And a singer who you think of as the greatest artist actually is very technical. All those things can happen. Sometimes it can be very insulting. Sometimes the teacher can be very mean. Sometimes it could be embarrassment. Sometimes you hear amazing singing and you get amazing results uh, after the teacher has had a chance to work with the singer. Uh, Marilyn Horn, master class at the Beenan School of Music at Northwestern on Tuesday, uh, April 5th. Fifth, and Nicole Cabell teaching a master class at DePaul University School of Music on Thursday. Uh, the DePaul one is free. The one at Northwestern is very cheap. It's like $5 or $10. Um, let's hear a little bit of master class. Uh, you all might know that Marilyn Horn is my favorite singer of all time. This is from a master class that took place in Montreal in 2015. We're going to hear the tail end of the double aria finale from Bellini's La Sonambula. I won't say the name of the singer, uh, but we'll hear what Marilyn Horner has to say as soon as it's over. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you obviously have a, 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 an easy, at least it sounds easy, easy top, really high notes. So what you lack is how to sell them. You, you, you know, this kind of music sounds fairly simple, except obviously, blah, 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 and all that is not easy to sing. But you have to make your points when you, for instance, even how to time your very last note. That, that times it. If you just sort of don't time the rhythm, it, 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 it throws it away. You just did all that incredibly hard stuff, and you threw away the end. But we have to go back now. I made you sing the whole thing, first of all, to get rid of your nerves, and secondly, to show if you have the stamina, because one of the things to sing these arias is the stamina, because they're hard. And you've got to really, you've got to have all your poop underneath you, even at the end. Okay, let's start. For a singer who is in retirement like Marilyn Horn, it is great to see her give back to the singing community by doing these master classes. Sure, she's getting paid. Sure, she's getting her butt kissed wherever she goes. But it is work for her, and she's getting up there in age. She's over 80 years old at this point, if I'm not mistaken. And it's just wonderful to see her still with a lot of passion for this art and contributing to it. Uh, I will be there uh, on Tuesday, and I probably will be there on Thursday for Nicole Cabell as well. Um, don't forget that this weekend, Chicago College for the Performing Arts at Roosevelt University offers two free performances of Monteverdi's Popea, Coronation of Popea. I'm going to be there on Saturday for the cast that includes E. Ming Chua, E. E. Ming Chua, countertenor as Nero, and Valdis Gregory as Tavia, two singers who I know from the Liederstube who are fantastic. Speaking of the Liederstube, there is a Liederstube salon event this Friday at the Fine Arts Building. If you've never been to one of those, this would be a great opportunity to peek in and see what we do at the Liederstube, which is sing art song at each other. And I just want to say that the Javier Camarena recital from last week was a huge success. I'm so happy that many people turned up, even the Mexican community, who I don't normally see in these types of events, they showed up to support him. And he rewarded us with four encores, which included Amezami with its nine high C's and a song in Spanish called Jurame, uh, which had a high E flat above C interpolated into it, I think. And then he sang a wicked Granada, uh, which he transposed up into like the mezzo-soprano key. It was so ridiculously high. All of these events can be found on VocalArtsChicago.com, and I will be talking at you live next week. That's the Field Report from Chicago, Illinois. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. All right, time for Monday Evening Quarterback, where we review shows that we've seen, and we don't do it in a highfalutin fancy sort of way. We just hand out some letter grades. One thing you're definitely going to want to do if you're listening to the show and you have access to the internet right now, go ahead and go to our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com. You're going to find links to the shows on that page, and that is going to allow you to look at cast lists and production photos 
so that the shows that I'm talking about are going to make a little more sense, you'll be able to take a look at what I was able to see live and in person. All right, the Monday evening quarterback segment. It's our chance to review shows. And rather than having a highly intelligent analysis, just handing out some good old-fashioned letter grades. Well, I saw three shows this week. The first was Parsifal by Richard Wagner, which was at the Staatsoper in Berlin. And then as part of the Strauss Wochen at the Deutsche Oper, I saw two pieces, obviously, by Strauss, Richard Strauss. Uh, the first was the uh, Ägyptische Helena, the Egyptian... Helena, and then the second was Zalame, the, I would say, well-known story about uh, the incestuous lady and the dance of the seven veils. But I want to start with Parsifal to begin with. Uh, this was the last opera that Wagner completed, and he wrote it for the uh, Bayreuth House, the Bayreuther Festspiele, which I mentioned earlier on in the podcast. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the plot. It's based on a Arthurian legend. It has some pretty clear Christian overtones. It focuses around Parsifal, one of the knights, um, and his search for the Holy Grail. I'll leave it to you guys, our listeners, to look up the plot. I'll leave it to the musicologists to talk about the music and so forth. I'm going to leave it to be my job to talk about the production. The production was directed and designed by the Russian Dmitry Cherniakov, who had his debut uh, at the Met a couple years ago. Uh, this is the first piece I've seen of his live, although I have seen production photos of his other work, and I've always found it pretty attractive and interesting. It's definitely contemporary. This production was set in, it felt like a secret society room. It definitely reminded me of my days at Yale. Not that I was in society or that if I was, I'd be able to talk about it. Um, but it was definitely contemporary. Everyone was wearing contemporary clothes. Uh, the character of Parsifal was wearing a big rucksack as if he'd been traveling around the world. Uh, and that part was sung by Andreas Schager, who was fantastic. D dare I add that this show is five hours long, so you definitely get your money's worth when you're seeing it. The cast was absolutely stacked. Uh, Gunnemans was sung by Renee Pappa, and the role of Kundry, who is the only woman in the show, was sung by Waltraud Meyer. Now, she's a big deal. I'm going to tell you why. is because she has taken this role of Kundry and really made it her own. She first started singing it in 1983. And that was at the Bayreuther Festspiele. And she has kind of owned this role for over 30 years. And the performance I saw was the last time that she was ever going to sing the part. Total happenstance. I had no idea that that was going to be the case. And actually, uh, during the curtain call, uh, Daniel Berenboim, who's the music director at the Staatsoper, and Jürgen Flim, who's the general manager came out and gave a speech actually while everyone was still there in the seats in the audience saying how incredible it was that she's been doing that and when when you think about it that really is incredible so absolute a for her and and she really was fantastic in the role the production itself i found a little confusing um I'll be honest with you, the first act is, I mean, all the acts are long. The first act is pretty long, and I was a little sleepy. 
uh, having just arrived back in Berlin from a crazy weekend in London. But I definitely picked up in Acts 2 and 3. I think that what Chernyakov is able to do with this show, again, it comes in at five hours, is really pace himself and pace the singers and pace the production. Uh, And he was able to find that balance between having neither too much nor too little happening on stage. Um, So I'm going to go B plus on that. This big part for the men's chorus, less so for the women's chorus. There's these um, flower maidens, which are part of the story. And so the the women do have some role to play. But really the male chorus is really much more involved. And uh, they, I think, really executed themselves very well. Fantastic singing. I mean, really clear diction, absolutely in tune, A- minus for the chorus. And of course, for Berenbaum and the orchestra, I've heard them play before uh, in the opera house, and it's really, I mean, all these orchestras in, in German opera houses, especially in Berlin, are just fantastic. Um, but definitely an A there. Moving on to the Straußwochen at the Deutsche Oper, uh, I got to admit that the production of the Egyptian Helena is pretty forgettable. The show is not great. The production was confusing. I don't have too much to say about it. Uh, I'll give it a C, I suppose, just overall. I, I don't know why you would do the piece. I went to see it because I'll probably never see it again. It's really not done that often. But I want to move on quickly to this production of Zalame. Now, the production of Zalame was directed by Klaus Gut, who um, is a well-known German director. This was a new production, which had opened up earlier this year uh, at the Deutsche Oper, and it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, as I said in the intro, the story, I think, is something that you probably know. It's about, uh, it's a biblical story about this uh, woman, Zalame, who has had a crazy childhood and a crazy early life. There's been incest. There's been abuse. Her parents have separated. She has a sort of awful stepfather, and she lives in this sort of debauched house. Uh, again, historically, it is a an Old Testament biblical story. This production was set in a men's fashion store. So huge racks of suits and ties and hats. And that was really striking. First of all, it just sort of looked beautiful, but it provided this very elegant backdrop against which these awful things in the house of Zalame play out. This sense of abuse, uh, the dance of the seven veils in which Zalame is asked... um, by her father to do this erotic dance to please him, and in return for which she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So things get nasty fast. And I think that that discord between the horrible events of the piece and the clean beauty of um, the male chorus immaculately dressed, that sort of tension was really quite riveting. The other thing that was interesting about this show was the use of stylized movement. Now, in general, that's not something I'm into. Uh, Certainly in grad school, if we ever had anyone moving in slow motion or everyone like being in a freeze, we automatically got an F. Well, Klaus Gut did something a little different. 
this went along with the idea of setting the piece in a men's uh, dressing store. And it was this, was that everyone was moving like a mannequin. So imagine like moving like a robot where the legs and the arms are very disjointed. Imagine C-3PO moving. That sort of like halted sense of movement was taken over by everybody in the cast apart from Zalame. And it brought a very bizarre feeling to everything. Uh, it wasn't a freeze. It wasn't slow motion. But it was very shocking. And again, I think this whole piece from the outset is really it's not designed to shock, but it really needs to be shocking if it's going to have any sort of impact at all. I tell you, I wish I would have thought of that idea. So absolute A for the directing and for the design and the sense of stylized movement. Um, fantastic singing by the cast. And that cast included Alison Oakes singing the role of Zalame, and she was... Just fantastic. There's a great voice, great actress. That is a really, I think, scary role for a lot of singers to do. And she really pulled it off. A, there. Um, the role of Herodias, which is Zalame's mother, was sung by Jean-Michel Chabonnet. And I have never seen such fantastic acting before. She was so immersed and so involved in the world and what she was doing. At every moment on stage, especially when she wasn't singing, actually, was really compelling. A for her as well. I also need to make a mention of uh, the idea of Klaus Gut to use six supernumeraries, is the fancy word. We would call them extras, I suppose, which were six girls, uh, all one slightly taller than the next one, which basically were on stage much of the time, and we're all dressed just like Zalame. And it really gave you this sense of her childhood, which is such a part of the backstory of this show. And so these six girls, ranging from, oh, I don't know, like five years old up to maybe, say, 18, that's what they looked like. I don't know how old they actually were, really gave you a sense of what had happened before the story of the opera had begun. Another idea from Klaus Gut that I would totally steal in a heartbeat. So an A there as well. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist. Let's go inside the huddle. Time to go back inside the huddle. My second guest on the show today, Roy Rallo. He is a staff assistant director at San Francisco Opera. He's a director in his own right. I met him in 2013 when I was doing the Marilla Opera program. He's just a great guy, super smart, super fun, great sense of humor, has been doing this business for many years, has seen everything, spends most of his time in San Francisco. It's true. I was able to catch up with him here in Berlin get his take on the scene here, get his take on opera in America, and push him a little bit on what he thinks about the business side of things. And his response, it's harsh, and I think it's going to surprise you. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, Roy Rallo, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Here we are in Neukölln. Am I right? This is... No, this is Kreuzberg. Ah, okay, <clears throat> right on. If you went across the canal, you'd be in Neukölln. 
Uh-huh, I remember that canal as I was walking. Or Kreuzkum, as they call it, attempting to <laughs> raise the real estate prices by associating it with Kreuzberg. Is this the last neighborhood to be gentrified? Oh, no, there will be many more. You um, are here right now, but you're also based in San Francisco. I am. At the San Francisco Opera, where you're a, a staff assistant director. Correct. And how did you end up there? Um, I uh, worked at a company called Long Beach Opera um, back in the olden days when the only uh, sort of progressive production style uh, opera was being done in Long Beach. And that was sort of my childhood opera experience. Um, and I ended up working there for six years. And then I wanted to work for bigger companies and check out the possibility of being a director. And so I uh, was the artistic administrator there. So then I left and started working as an assistant stage manager at San Francisco Opera and then became an assistant director there. And um, yeah. And is there any intrinsic difference that you can describe for our listeners between being an assistant stage manager and an assistant director? Oh, very big difference. Yeah. An assistant uh, stage manager is dealing with mostly, you know, the technical aspects of what goes on backstage, the props, the, you know, making sure everything is ready for the singers, getting them on stage, giving them cues. Uh, you know, uh, their eye is looking at all at all of those sorts of things, whereas this assistant director's eye is looking more from the front of stage. So what it looks like, whether the cues that are called end up appearing on stage, whether the scenery that was called onto stage is actually there. Um, these are the things that an assistant director does during a performance. But then during the rehearsals, the assistant director is uh, is dealing with the director and uh, also taking down the blocking and learning the show so that when the director leaves on opening night, the assistant is in charge of what uh, the performance is. And uh, also, uh, should anyone have to be replaced? Um, if anyone gets ill or sometimes there's a second cast, the assistant is responsible for directing them. Uh, here we are in Berlin. How did you end up on this side of the Atlantic as well as being in San Francisco? I, uh, always was interested in German as a language. I learned German in college and I was interested in pursuing learning it better. So I, um, when I, I, Met a, a, when I was working at Long Beach Opera, we have an, a, had a music director named Stephen Sloan who offered me his apartment once in Frankfurt, and I came and uh, stayed there for com some months and went to uh, a bunch of shows and learned about how it was different here than it was in the U.S. And uh, came to Berlin, had friends who let me stay in their apartments, and you know I uh, I tended to uh, be more attracted to the production style in Germany, and I care a lot about opera and theater so there's a lot of opera and theater in germany so i uh you know made it i come here every year just on a tourist visa for a couple months um if i can if i'm free and um check out theater and be in germany for a while what is your take on the three big opera houses in this city we've talked about it before on the podcast this is a bonus episode so i want to get some a bonus take from you on that it's, uh, well, there are three, there is an abundance of opera in Berlin for sure. Um, and the three houses that, uh, try very much to have a different identity. The Komische Oper certainly at the, in the, under the reign of Berikowski at the moment is quite different than the other two houses. Um, it wasn't always the case that the Komische Oper was completely different. Um, 
but they are. And that actually brings up an interesting question, um, you know, that uh, is bantied around in opera land, uh, which might not make so much sense to an American, but um, makes sense to a German because the productions at the, at the commercial opera are uh, quite appealing to the public um, and um, are a, a little bit show busy, um, uh, at least compared to what you might expect in, an, in, a, in another German opera house. And so uh, that can cause an interesting uh, question to happen for Germans, which is if you're doing shows that are almost always sold out and also very popular and kind of glitzy and, you know, some would say a little bit in the direction of Broadway, um, are you deserving of a public subsidy? Um, because the public subsidies in Germany are meant to provide uh, subsidies to performances which are would not uh, otherwise be able to, t- able to take place because they are not satisfying to a large audience. So um, uh, that's a kind of an interesting thing for an American to know about, um, is that German theater and German opera has a kind of a direction which has to do with exploring, um, you know, uh, the the various angles of these pieces, which might not always be about, well, certainly are are usually not about trying to figure out how to entertain the audience. Let's go a little closer into that question of the angle that directors are taking on the productions. Uh, On the podcast, we've talked about a lot of uh, wild interpretations, a lot of crazy staging. Is that sort of aesthetic something you think could be successful in the U.S.? How prevalent is it? Well, the whole the U.S. and the German system are so fundamentally different that um, I do think it could be successful in the U.S., but it requires a certain understanding about what it is to go to the theater, which, uh, you know, these two countries have very different ideas about. Um, so, uh, you know, you have to realize that in Germany, most theater is state subsidized. So that means, once again, that it doesn't matter whether you tell tickets or not. Um, and it's, and the point of the stage is so that, uh, you know, uh, many small towns have, uh, their own theater companies, ballet companies, um, opera companies. Um, uh, the, the point of which is that you're, you're meant to allow the people to express themselves on a stage and the government should not be able to say anything about what happens on the stage. And also theater is a, is a platform for dialogue, which is to say that different uh, theater uh, professionals, people that write plays, people that direct plays, people that direct other people's plays are attempting to say something with them most of all. Um, they're saying something about current events. They're saying something about, you know, uh, politics. They're saying something about the whole notion of doing theater or the whole notion of presenting opera. Um, there are, it's a s- sort of series of commenting. There's almost a kind of a, you know, there's always a subtext of commenting going on. The idea that you just present the piece as lovely as possible for an audience of people who've paid a lot of money and gotten really dressed up to go to the opera is... If that were your intention in Germany, you probably would want want to keep that under your your hat because that would be laughed at as a kind of a disgusting way of producing opera. <laughs> um, 
whereas if your intention were to actually delve into the piece or what the piece is uh, uh, trying to say, or maybe even go against what the piece is saying, or create a new kind of idea about what it is for an audience to experience an opera or, or hear it or, or, or anything, if you want to sort of break things open, um, that's, that's more what one does in a in a subsidized situation, whereas in the U.S., you're, you tend to be at the behest of people um, who are giving a lot of money who don't want to see anything on the stage that they don't like, and they will take that money away, and you won't be able to have your opera company. On the shows from Germany, the last couple of podcasts, we've been talking about how few Americans can work successfully in Germany, and really how few Germans can work successfully in America. What are some of the barriers that you think are preventing that sort of cultural exchange or possibility? I would say one of the barriers is cultural. Um, I was a co-director of a production at the uh, Deutsche Oper, for, for example, of, uh, of Aida with Christopher Alden. And uh, even before the show opened, it was quite clear that no, that it was going to be attacked um, because... Uh, we set it in a kind of a religious sect, which was a little bit like Scientology, a little bit like Mormonism, a little bit, you know, it was vague. But um, but but what one could feel that the reaction we we did a sort of a preview lecture. One of, one of the reactions was that this has nothing to do with Germany. We don't have Mormons here and we don't have we don't like Scientology and therefore this has nothing to do with us. Um, you know, obviously, there are wider ranging um, uh, associations that one can make with a totalitarian regime, which I do think that probably um, Germany has a little bit of experience with. Basically, you know, there was a little friction about why did we bring Americans to this German stage to tell us about our our culture, um, which in a way uh, I kind of agree with because I kind of think that, uh, you know, and this is I've come around to this uh, idea. I kind of think that really these stages might be more interestingly employed by people who live here, who live in this culture, because uh, it's a more dynamic experience for uh, someone who knows how to direct, certainly someone who knows how to use the apparatus of a theater to remark on their culture, their politics, their uh, and to build on the things that their forefathers within their culture and within their theater tradition have built. Um, coming from the outside as an American, you might not know anything about that in the same way that when Germans come to the United States, they they are speaking to an audience and that's, it's a dialogue. So, you know, they may not understand the vernacular of the people sitting in the seats. So it is, uh, it's not entirely unreasonable to, uh, for there to be that barrier. It's quite a difference in the United States and Germany. There are other barriers which have to do with the way that theaters are run, which has to do with a certain amount of people that run opera companies who uh, are in, in some ways quite a limited group of people. Um, and uh, what's gone on lately, um, uh, and when I say lately, I probably mean in the last 20 years, is that instead of small theaters being about, um, you know, uh, 
hey, George, you live in uh, Karlsruhe and we, you want to be a director and you've gone to the university in Germany and here's the, you know, the, the place for you to start out. You could work with the ensemble, the young ensemble, and then eventually we give you production. Um, and, you know, you, you could little, live in Karlsruhe. Um, it's, it's become more about we want big star directors to grace our stage so that it will be a more important place than it would be otherwise, because just living in Karlsruhe and singing in Karlsruhe and directors who could be around Karlsruhe uh, talking to the people of Karlsruhe is not as fancy, glitzy, fabulous, and amazing as if George has his huge career that um, we can write a big bio description of and it, doesn't necessarily um, sometimes even matter what the projection is, as long as everybody knows that he's very important. Um, that has made its way into opera as it has in many other realms. I had written to you initially to say, look, I'm coming to Germany. I'm trying to meet with artistic directors and dramaturgs. Who can you put me in touch with? And your response was fantastic. You said... I'm afraid the opera business is so corrupt that I could not with any good conscience suggest to any of my fellow humans to do anything to agree to its values. What, what made you say that? Well, I, I, would, I would augment that statement by saying that the world of business um, with a big B is, is so corrupt and that the uh, opera world has adopted that model. Um, and that, uh, you know, you one can hope that art and music uh, has a more, uh, more humanistic grounding than uh, these kind of commodifications of uh, productions, works, uh, you know, people um, that has uh, sort of happened in the world of opera, you, you know. It, it, on the lowest level, in my opinion, the lowest level artistically, what you do in opera is you try to figure out who the most, you just look around and you see who are the people that are getting the most jobs and then you you give them a job. And you want to be that person who's getting the most jobs because that's how you get more jobs. Uh, it may be that you have so many jobs that you don't actually have time to go to the rehearsals of those jobs. I worked on a production uh, recently where the director who appeared at the um, stage rehearsals who did not know the names of the characters um, uh, then proceeded to restage the show uh, um, not even knowing what they were saying um, and uh, then proceeded to uh, appear as if that person had directed the show um, when really uh, the assistant had directed the show. That person's slated to direct uh, future productions for which they are not actually going to attend rehearsals, but they're quite famous. Um, and they spend a lot of time uh, getting jobs. Um, they don't spend a lot of time actually examining the material or actually directing the show. So this is, the, this is what I mean by the corruption of the business. And this happens uh, quite a lot. You know, they go opera house to opera house getting more and more jobs because they're selling their brand and they're selling their name. And that's a business model. That's not an artistic model and that's not a serious model, but it's a model that is pervasive and it's a model that's quite successful for a certain amount of people. There are certainly many very serious directors who do very serious work and would never imagine not attending their rehearsals. Um, but uh, I think it's a pervasive quality of uh, opera and theater 
um, on some level. It's more about um, name brands than it is the work itself. Name brands and kind of personae. Um, and uh, if you have a big persona and a big name, you don't necessarily need to have any other skills. Roy Rallo, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> Ciao. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Almost time to wrap this show up before we just do a good call and a bad call. Good call for me this week is ticket prices in Germany to go to the opera are so reasonable. I was just thrilled with that. I mean, you can go to a really good mid-level house and, you know, 15 euro, 30 euro, get a seat and a good seat at that. Uh, the exception, of course, is the is the big cities. That would be a bad call, I guess, um, that the... Bavarian State Opera, well, I couldn't even get a ticket, and uh, for those of you who listened to the show last week, Amy Stebbins, my friend, had to hook me up with a standing room seat. Um, back in Berlin for that production of Parsifal at the Staatsoper, my ticket was over 100 euro as well, which I, I held my nose and did it because I really wanted to see that production of Parsifal. But uh, that's pretty high. Now, of course, that's nothing compared to London, where I was supposed to go see a production of Boris Godunov. And the cheapest ticket was £125. That is crazy. And that's it for our podcast series from Germany. And this time, I really do mean it. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. At WNUR, our programming director is Vil Shone, and the general manager is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. Special thanks to Kirsten Harms and Roy Rallo. Thanks also to Oliver Macho Camacho for checking in from Chicago. However you listen to our podcast, please let us know what you think. Be sure to leave comments and reviews. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page. And if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. You can email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com and suggest a Chalk Talk segment. What topic would you like to weigh in on? Or join us for Monday Evening Quarterback and hand out some grades for an opera production that you've seen recently. On our website operaboxscore.squarespace.com you can stream archived episodes and learn more about our team I'll be back in Chicago on April 11 and will be joined by the rest of the gang for our live radio show even long lost co-host Tobias Wright will be there and you should join us too I'm George Cedarquist asking you to keep the conversation about opera going even if you're on a beach somewhere for spring break <laughs>